Hey everyone, it's David Chen. Welcome to Culturally Relevant. Usually on this podcast, I interview filmmakers and artists and writers about film, television, art, and culture. But today on the podcast, it's going to be another coronavirus update because a lot's going on. I have a lot on my mind. And if you are subscribed to this and listening to it, it means uh, you're probably someone who I can share my thoughts with, uh, somebody who might care what I have to say about this topic. Uh, so that's what today's episode is going to be. There's going to be a normal episode next week, maybe a bonus episode in the meantime. Uh, but until then, you can find more episodes of this show at culturallyrelevantshow.com. You can also uh, find episodes of Culturally Relevant wherever you download your podcasts. Uh, and if you're interested in emailing me, you can find me at culturallyrelevantshow at gmail.com. I'd also appreciate it if you could follow the show on Twitter, at crevshow, that's C-R-E-V-S-H-O-W. So I'm living in Seattle right now as I'm recording this. It's May 6, 2020. And uh, as of this moment, uh, more than 1.2 million people in the United States have been infected with the coronavirus, and at least 73,000 500 people have died, according to a New York Times database. More than 1,000 additional deaths have been announced every day since April 2nd. So that's just a quick gut check on where we are in the United States. And if you are listening to this right now, I hope you are doing what you can to stay safe and stay healthy. I know it's not possible for everyone to do that. You might be an essential worker or you might have a living situation that doesn't allow that. Um, but if you are able to, uh, I do hope you are doing what you can to stay indoors uh, and help to flatten the curve. There's a few things that I just want to talk about today. Uh, one of them is the fact that it's a really confusing time right now. You know, uh, it is difficult to understand exactly what is going on with the coronavirus, with what is happening uh, to solve this problem that we're all going through right now. And Ed Young over at The Atlantic, is doing some great work. Got to give him a shout out. Again, he's written another great piece uh, that explains, quote, why the coronavirus is so confusing, a guide to making sense of a problem that is now too big for any one person to fully comprehend. Uh, that's the headline of the article. And I'll just read a couple passages here because I think like, there's a lot of information out there. Some of it is conflicting. Some of it uh, doesn't make any sense. Some of it is terrifying. And I do think it is important to uh, tr try to understand exactly why the information seems to be spiraling out of control. Um, and so Ed Young names a few reasons why things are so confusing right now. Uh, one of them is because typically uh, an event, a phenomenon like the coronavirus, would be analyzed and studied uh, over the course of many weeks, if not months, uh, in scientific journals in which there is a peer review process. Um, but, and it would iterate. You'd iterate back and forth and try to get closer to the truth. Uh, but because a lot of that iterating is taking place in public right now, it is causing people to A, be bombarded with information and B, to some extent, lose faith in the fact that this can even be understandable at all because of the variety of information they're receiving. Here's a quote from the article. Uh, Ed Young writes, quote, this is how science actually works. It's less the parade of decisive blockbuster discoveries that the press often portrays and more a slow, erratic stumble toward ever less uncertainty. Our understanding oscillates at first but converges on an answer, says Natalie Dean, a statistician at the University of Florida. That's the normal scientific process, but it looks jarring to people who aren't used to it, end quote. 
so yeah, I, I, I think it, it makes sense that like the scientific process, it's never about, hey, this is the answer. This is the one true thing that everyone should know. Uh, and we discovered it in a eureka moment, which is often what is depicted in films or described in media. Uh, but in fact, it's a painful, drawn-out process uh, that often begins with people stumbling aimlessly through the dark uh, and ends with less uncertainty. Uh, Ed Young continues here, quote, During news events like Trump's impeachment trial, people mostly share information to signal their beliefs, says Rene DiResta of Stanford, who studies how narratives spread online. But in a disaster, people tend to share information to be useful to their community, she says. Sharing offers agency. It allows people to collectively make sense of a situation riddled by anxiety and uncertainty. But when an earthquake happens, you talk to your neighbors, and in a few days, you figured out what's going on, Starbird says. For COVID-19, the uncertainty is persistent. The pandemic's length traps people in a liminal space. To clarify their uprooted life and indefinite future, they try to gather as much information as possible, and they cannot stop. We go seeking fresher and fresher information and end up consuming unvetted misinformation that's spreading rapidly, Bergstrom says. Pandemics actually unfold in slow motion, he says, and there's no event that changes the whole landscape on a dime. But it feels that way because of how relentlessly we quest for updates. Historically, people would have struggled to find enough information. Now people struggle because they're finding too much. There's a lot here about how we consume information that has the ring of truth to it. And I, I think uh, there's actually a new term I've seen online uh, for what it's like when you wake up in the morning. Every day is like the day before because many of us are staying inside or working from home. Uh, and so the days kind of blend into weekends. You roll over in your bed, you whip out the phone, and you start doing what people are calling doom scrolling. You know, Because you're scrolling through your feeds, your Apple News, your Twitters, your Facebooks. And you're just getting bombarded with variety of information, of different levels of reliability, uh, some of which is actually misinformation, some of which is alarmist. Uh, and yeah, and all of it is bad. There's very little good news going on right now that people are reporting. And so doom scrolling is the appropriate term. But I also like the term because I feel like it is a great term that encapsulates how self-defeating this process is in the sense that like doom scrolling is a thing that inherently sounds unproductive. And I I guess uh, the the thrust of this article, I I think, is just to say, hey, it's completely normal to feel like you're very confused by everything that's happening. Um, And there is no obligation on you as a single individual to understand everything. Uh, Because for a variety of reasons, it's very difficult to understand. Uh, Not least of which is that we don't actually know all the facts yet. And so uh, I I hope that if you're out there and feeling like under a lot of pressure to keep up to date with what's happening, that you just, uh, that this podcast serves as a reminder, you don't need to be kept up to date all the time because um, it's really impossible to do that. And also uh, there's just a lot of information out there that is is difficult to all, you know, put into a cohesive uh, puzzle that fits together. And uh, it's it's understandable that, uh, that you're not, able to piece it together in a way that makes sense quite yet. Hopefully one day we will be able to. Um, so anyway, on that note though, uh, a couple couple quick follow-ups to that. Like one of them is that uh, there, <laughs> Ed Young wrote another article shortly after that one, uh, May 6, 2020. He says here in the Atlantic, the problem with stories about dangerous coronavirus mutations there's no clear evidence that the pandemic virus has evolved into significantly different forms, and there probably won't be for months. Uh, end quote. I've seen this 
posted online about like, oh my gosh, it's terrifying. The coronavirus is evolving into new mutations and uh, it's like indestructible. And who knows, that may or may not be true, but Ed Young writes here, quote, it will take time to know whether different strains of the new coronavirus even exist, let alone whether there are any more dangerous uh, or less dangerous than the others. Any claims of that kind should be taken with a grain of salt for the next several months, if not longer. Uh, and he, he continues, between our insatiable need for information to assuage our anxiety and, cer- and uncertainty, the media's tendency to report uncritically on incremental studies and social channels that amplify extreme voices over careful ones, it's no wonder that confusion reigns. The misconceptions about dangerous strains are also seductive in their own right. If we believe that the virus has changed into some especially challenging form, we can more easily explain why certain people and places have been hit worse than others. A mystery whose answer, more likely but less satisfyingly, lies in political inaction, existing inequalities, and chance. Powerful antagonists make for easy narratives. Ineptitude, bias, and randomness make for difficult ones. End quote. I thought this is a great point, because I think one of the things that we should question just in general, about what we believe is why we believe these things, you know? This comes up uh, with the topic of conspiracy theories. Like, why is it that people believe in conspiracy theories? And it's fascinating to me. Uh, There's many reasons, like social reasons, social pressure being one of them. Many people, for instance, who believe in, like, the flat earth theory were social outcasts, and they found a community uh, in people that believe in flat earth, this thing that, like, you understand that no one else can, right? so social pressure, um, social norms is one reason. Another reason is because uh, believing in conspiracy theories or believing in things like there's a you know there's different strains of coronavirus that are like wiping out whole populations and some that aren't, uh, and it's mutating. It also allows us to more easily square facts of the world in our mind, right? It allows us to make sense of the world in some way, um, and not and feel like we're a little bit more in control like we have this knowledge that other people don't have or we're we're like ahead of everyone else um and you know that often that can be a good desire but um sometimes it can lead to misinformation spreading so uh what what i like about this piece is just that it encourages you when you believe something or when you reach for something to believe like just question for a second why it is you find that piece of information so seductive and uh, maybe consider whether or not uh, your attraction to that piece of information or wanting to believe that uh, might say something about you or more about the piece of information that you're evaluating. Uh, One of the best pieces about what is happening right now, I think, uh, comes from BuzzFeed. This is from uh, Ryan Broderick, one of my favorite writers. And Uh, He wrote an article entitled, We will never agree on what happened during the first wave of the pandemic, and that will make it harder to survive the second. Uh, End quote. And I think that, like, that's one of the things that I I just find hopelessly depressing right now is the fact that uh, we as a country, in America at least, don't have a shared set of facts anymore. And in the past, I mean, yes, that, that lack of shared set of facts led to the election of Donald Trump, and it led to many terrible things uh, happening. Uh, But now, with this pandemic, you can see the actual toll of human life in terms of the body count. And so the stakes of not having a shared set of facts feel much higher now. 
Uh, and I'm going to read here from the article. He says, quote, our new reality is as shared as the corpses buried in mass graves in New York City. And yet we have no common narrative about the pandemic. We still cannot find a consensus on what's happening. If we can't agree that we are living through a life-threatening pandemic and what it means to live through it, then what can we agree on? And how are we not hopelessly, horribly broken? Ryan continues... We will never agree in part because the science is genuinely unsettled and in part because it's two Republicans' advantage to make it seem like those zones of uncertainty are much larger than they actually are, end quote. And yeah, it's uh, it's upsetting that we as a country can't agree on a common set of facts and that's led to a bunch of weird-ass shit happening, like weird, upsetting things happening, like uh, a lot of protests for, you know, pe- people like protesting against lockdowns all around the country. Now, to be fair, there are many more people that are actually adhering to the lockdowns than that are actually responsible for the protests, but the protests got a lot of attention on the media and uh, they are defended publicly by high-ranking Republican officials. And so it it has kind of become a part of this us-versus-them narrative uh, that has sown further confusion and is tearing us apart even further. And I really like what Charlie Warzel from the New York Times tweeted about this recently. Uh, in, in the con- This is on April 18th, so it was a few weeks ago, and it was in the context of Alex Jones and people like Alex Jones fomenting these protests. And he wrote, quote, I've spent so much time covering Alex Jones and company over the years that I have almost nothing to say about these stay-at-home order protests. It's just the logical conclusion of a group of people who have found a way to harness fear, paranoia, and rage to enrich themselves and their egos. Alex spends his life looking for public places to put himself in front of people and behind a bullhorn. Nothing about this is surprising, but what's sad is the way in which people like him have created a reflexive response in an audience where any type of concern for others is tyranny, end quote. And th- this is what we're seeing, you know, I, when he said, when he tweeted that, it really, I felt like it unlocked something in my brain of like, yes, like that, that's the perfect way to describe this. Like any concern for others, anything that would abridge your freedom, even a tiny bit out of concern for others is regarded as tyranny. So we're seeing this with stay at home order protests. We're seeing this with people literally getting murdered because they ask someone to put a mask on. Right. I mean, this is a thing that actually happened. Uh, a, a man was murdered. Uh, a family dollar security guard was murdered in Flint, Michigan, uh, after telling a customer that her child had to wear a face mask to enter the store. Um, Calvin Munerlin told Charmel Lash Teague that customers needed to wear face masks in the store. She yelled at him, spit on him, and drove off. Um, about 20 minutes later, her car returned to the store, and her husband, Larry Edward Teague, and son, uh, Ramonia Trayvon Bishop, stepped out and confronted Munerlin. Bishop pulled out a gun and shot Munerlin. This is, I'm um, reading from the Washington Post right now. And, yeah, the, like, our disconnect is leading not only to people dying because they're transmitting COVID, but but it's leading to people dying because uh, they refuse to abridge their freedoms for any way. They uh, refuse to uh, take even the most minimum of considerate steps to protect others, like wearing a mask or staying indoors, if and when it's possible. Uh, and people are dying. And uh, we, we are now witnessing the result of these kind of 
different bubbles and worlds that America lives in right now. So that's kind of my point one that I wanted to make on today's uh, podcast is like, it's normal to be confused. There's only three points, by the way. So don't worry, it's not going to go on for that long. Uh, but yeah, it's normal to be confused. And we as a country uh, are, are living in different realities about what is actually happening, but also what should be done about it. The other thing that I wanted to talk about that's really kind of troubling to me these days is the fact that uh, there is this kind of normalization of what's happening. And this is something you've heard me talk about on previous episodes of this podcast about how like we shouldn't normalize what's happening right now. And uh, I saw this tw- tweet thread by uh, at Kristen Rawls recently. And I'll just read from this tweet thread. And you, you may or may not agree with this, but I thought it was worth considering. She writes here, uh, quote, It's very weird how there's been no collective mourning for all the dead. No television specials honoring them. Almost no mention of them at all. Nothing at all. I understand we can't have funerals, but I remember news specials about the Oklahoma City victims, 9-11 victims, nothing here. And no, it wouldn't require a lot of people in a studio to show photos of people over music, conduct interviews about their lives over, over mediums like Zoom. There's just no collective mourning at all. It's horrifying. People are pushing to reopen things as quickly as possible. Democratic and Republican governors are happily going along with it. The only way this is even thinkable is that we've refused to grapple with the losses. Tens of thousands more will die as a result. I'm a little disgusted with all the people telling me this is because Trump has no empathy. It follows that no one else can have empathy. How exactly? Yes, a president sets a tone, but the president is not a king and he does not control the media. There is no reason we cannot collectively decide to do something just because the president fails to set the proper tone. It's very ominous that we're not doing this beyond a few state governments and a handful of publications. A polity very broadly desensitized to mass death, one that refuses to acknowledge, let alone mourn it, would be very useful to a fascist tyrant. We're showing what we will tolerate right now. And, you know, I don't necessarily agree with everything in that tweet thread, but I think there's a lot there about, again, in the United States, 73,500 have died, right? And if you, if you compare the deaths to other mass casualty events that we've had, uh, I just think of like, I don't know, Columbine, 9-11. I mean, the, the, obviously, it's a widespread in terms of number of deaths. But like, if you think of like how much media attention was devoted to like each of those things, you know, hundreds of hours of media like attention was de- devoted to those events and uh and not only not only the events themselves but also uh the people that died in those events you know the, the people i remember in, in church how we would talk about some of the people that died in columbine like one of the girls in columbine who um was a christian and and how uh she refused to renounce jesus you know this became kind of like a uh, uh, she became a, a folk hero in Christian, in Christian circles, and like, and uh, basically, to me, in my own personal media bubble, it feels like uh, there has not been much mourning over the deaths that have occurred. Uh, I, friends of mine who have lost loved ones, I've I've seen them publicly mourning, and that is tragic. But it feels like uh, collectively, as a society. Uh, we aren't really mourning to the the magnitude that something like this would suggest based on previous events of, of similar scope in terms of number of deaths. And I, I don't just think it's about like, hey, why aren't we in anguish? I, I think there's like, there's, there's actual social and political and public health consequences from that lack of mourning, from that lack, from, from normalizing all of this. One great write-up of this comes from Charlie Warzel again, who again wrote that um, 
tweet thread that I read from. But uh, he he also wrote this other piece today. This was really, honestly, what prompted me to uh, record this episode because I read this article today and it just really dug into my brain and um, like I'm having a hard time processing it and I wanted to share it with you guys uh, to see what you thought of it. But on May 5th, 2020, Charlie Warzel published this opinion piece in the New York Times. It's entitled, Open States, Lots of Guns, America is Paying a Heavy Price for Freedom. And this article, in my opinion, kind of describes the the worst case scenario for what's going to happen here, which is that this all becomes normal. And he, he writes here, quote, I first saw it on Twitter. Someone poke holes in this scenario, a tweet from Eric Nelson, the editorial director of Broadside Books read. We keep losing 1,000 to 2,000 a day to coronavirus. People get used to it. We get less vigilant as it slowly spreads. By December, we're close to normal, but still losing 1,500 a day. And as we tick past 300,000 dead, most people aren't concerned. This tweet hit me, Charlie Warzel, like a ton of bricks because of just how plausible it seemed. The day I read Mr. Nelson's tweet, 1,723 Americans were reported to have died from the virus, and yet their collective passing was hardly mourned. After all, how to distinguish those souls from the 2,097 who perished the day before or the 1,558 who died the day after? Such loss of life is hard to comprehend when it's not happening in front of your own two eyes— Add to it the, the fact that humans are adaptable creatures no matter how nightmarish the scenario, and it seems understandable that our outrage would dull over time. Unsure how or perhaps unable to process tragedy at scale, we get used to it. There's also a national precedent for Mr. Nelson's hypothetical, America's response to gun violence and school shootings, end quote. And Warzel goes on to talk about how the fact that we have normalized mass casualty death as a result of guns, we've normalized high rates of suicide that come uh, as a result of guns, um, it, it, it kind of present, presents a template for how America might just become okay with coronavirus. Like one day in the future, we, we're just going to be okay with like, hey, you might get shot if you go to church or if you go to Walmart. Similarly, you might get COVID and die if you go to the supermarket. Like that's what might end up happening in this country. And And... Uh, nothing I've seen about how we are handling this as a country tells me that like it's not going to end up that way. Like it, it feels like that's a very distinct possibility. And uh, you know, I, the thing that I keep coming back to is that it didn't have to be this way. You know, it, it yes, there were always going to be a lot of people that died, but I mean, there's many countries that have solved this problem already uh, or have certainly come way closer to solving it than us. And uh, it, it, similar to how we experience mass casualty gun deaths, it's like we also uh, are, are seemingly willing to just accept, hey, lots of people might die for this. Um, and it is a distinctly American phenomenon, you know? Uh, or I mean, maybe there are other countries in the world that also uh, will just kind of Throw their hands up and say, "Hey, you know, got to open the, got to open the government, got to open the economy." Like, uh, there's no other way. I mean, I, I think there are other ways. You know that that around the world we've seen um, skilled technocratic governments deploying resources, uh, organizing a public health response, uh, people responsibly staying in, either uh, because they're willing to do that or because they have been forced to, and government stimulus to support. Uh, citizens during that time, like paying people to stay home. We as a country are unwilling to do 
many of those things. And uh, si similarly to how other countries have solved the problem of gun deaths, uh, or, or at least mainly solved them, you know, like the, the U.S. has so many more gun deaths than other countries. Other countries have charted out a better path for this that we also seem unwilling to follow. And it's a national tragedy. Uh, and I, I just hope that, you know, I hope we don't end up there, but, uh, you know, I'm recording this and I don't know if anyone listening to this is influenceable or convincible otherwise, but if you are, uh, please don't normalize this. You know, I'm sad we're normalizing it and, uh, it has real consequences that we're normalizing it because it might lead us to kind of a pretty horrifying outcome, uh, where we just accept these deaths happen all the time. So that's my point number two, is that we shouldn't normalize this. Point number one, it's normal to be confused. Point number two, I'm sad we're normalizing it. Before I get to point three, I want to just take a pause and talk about some more lighthearted, some some uh, funner things, you know, some more lighthearted stuff. Um, and talk a little bit about like what I've been reading. You know, I usually do a weekly recommendation on the podcast, and so I do want to recommend a few things. Um, I'll recommend something I've been reading, something I've been uh, watching, and something I've been playing. Uh, so in terms of something I've been reading, I had a chance to read Super Pumped, The Battle for Uber, which is a book by Mike Isaac. And it's a fairly gripping tale, very easy read about the rise and fall of Travis Kalanick at, at Uber. Uh, very fascinating story. And it's easy to forget how much negative PR Uber endured over the course of like a four month period. I think it was in like 2017 or something like that. Like uh, it was just like week after week, there would be a terrible headline about Uber. And uh, fascinating about the book is also the fact that Mike Isaac became a part of the story. Like one of the people who was trying to oust Travis Kalanick uh, from the uh, CEO position used Mike Isaac as a, uh, bargaining chip's not the right word, but like as a stick, not the carrot, but the stick in terms of trying to, uh, like he, he threatened to leak stuff to Mike Isaac and then like that would uh, basically put Travis in a terrible position. And it's just fascinating to read a story from somebody who is in the story, like unwittingly became part of the story. Uh, but it's a fascinating read and it kind of tells you the story of like how Uber uh, came to be uh, where it is today. Um, of course, Uber, unfortunately, is one of the companies that's very negatively impacted by the coronavirus. They just announced today they're laying off 3,700 employees or 14% of the workforce. Um, essentially, many Silicon Valley companies, many companies in general that rely on um, people being willing to share their belongings is not – they're not doing well right now and they probably won't be doing well for a while. Um, sharing belongings, public space, you know, like theaters – um, so I, I hope uh, if you're out there uh, and at one of the impact, if you're one of the people impacted, I, I hope you're doing okay. And I'm sorry that uh, you are going through this. Uh, but the book is super pumped. It's a battle for Uber. It's an interesting story about what happened with the rise and fall of Travis, uh, CEO of Uber, former CEO. Something I've been watching is the Skywalker Legacy. You know, uh, this is a documentary about the making of Star Wars Episode Nine, uh, the Rise of Skywalker. Uh, I had been waiting for uh, the Rise of Skywalker to hit Disney Plus, which I subscribed to because I didn't want to pay twenty dollars for the Rise of Skywalker, which is a movie I didn't like very much. 
Um, and I was hoping that this documentary would be on Disney Plus along with Rise of Skywalker. And sure enough, when Rise of Skywalker debuted, uh, the Skywalker legacy was there. And I, I'm probably going to record another episode about just this documentary, but uh, I just want to say I thought it was very, very enjoyable. And it gives you a real appreciation of how much work goes into any film, even a bad one, even one you don't like. The sheer amount of effort and artistry that went into Rise of Skywalker is staggering. And Skywalker Legacy will give you a good sense of that. So that's the Skywalker Legacy. You can buy that. Uh, it comes with Rise of Skywalker on a lot of VOD platforms. It's also streaming on Disney+. And finally, uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about this game I've been playing called Frostpunk. Frostpunk is a game where you're in a post-apocalyptic world, uh, and you, the player, are in charge of humanity's last outpost. And this game is great. I mean, it is a, it's kind of like SimCity, um, but it like a steampunk version of it. And uh, you're like combine maybe SimCity with Mad Max Fury Road, and that's Frostpunk. It is relentlessly bleak. I mean, it is a game that is so depressing that uh, it's almost comical. How depressing it is, you know, because basically uh, all these people are stuck in the middle of the wilderness. It's like a nuclear winter uh, or post, you know, global warming winter or whatever the hell. And everyone is freezing to death and you need to save them. You're the only person that's going to save these people. And uh, every now and then you get little updates, like little pop-ups in the game. And, you know, if you're playing The Sims or if you're playing SimCity, it'll be like, hey, um, you know, you built, a, you built a university. Congratulations. You know, it'll be something like that. In Frostpunk, it's like, we found a child frozen to death near the graveyard. You know, now you must tell her parents that she's dead. And it's like, wow. Um, that's... <laughs> I mean, it's like just remember, like think of that, but like that's the aesthetic of the entire game is just relentlessly terrible things happening to all these people that you're overseeing. Uh, and what's what's also interesting about it is like in, inevitably the game becomes a uh, commentary on what it means to rule people because as the game goes on, you need to make all these terrible decisions about uh, how how to uh, govern, right? Because people get unhappy, people are unruly. Uh, they uh, they want things. They they are an endless uh, pool of want. Uh, that you know you're not doing things exactly the right way, or um, too many of them are dying from frostbite, or too many of them are becoming amputees because of all the conditions you put them under. And you, as the leader, you can either accept that they'll be less productive and likely to overthrow you and unhappy, or you can try to placate them. Using force, or uh, you know, one of, you can choose between like order and religion, which are the two paths that eventually lead to kind of totalitarianism. And uh, <laughs> it's like, if you want to succeed, basically, the game seems to be saying you need to choose a path in which you are you are uh, controlling people by force or through propaganda. And um, it's really it's pretty troubling. So you might ask, why, David? Why are you playing this game, Frostpunk, during this terrible time? And I think playing a game like this, it helps me to get out my negative emotions and my worries and my concerns into this game and leave less of that for real life. Um, it might not work the same for you. It might enhance or exacerbate your own uh, feelings of despair. Uh, but for me, it's something that works. And uh, that's why I recommend it. It's it's really, really well done game. Um, most games that are like this, you know, like Civilization or whatever, I, I just find it... 
I, I, I don't have the patience for them because I'm like, I don't want to manage all these resources. I just want to go in and shoot some things or whatever. Um, but Frostpunk is a game that is so good that it like demands uh, my effort. You know, it, it, it makes me want to rise to the game's challenge, you know, because if a game is that good, you want to really be like, hey, I, I can I can beat this game, you know, and uh, and I will be rewarded for it with like really compelling gameplay and with really good storytelling, even though it is dark. But that's what I've been keeping me occupied. You know, Super Pump, The Battle for Uber, Skywalker Legacy, and Frostpunk, which is available on PC. The game came out a couple of years ago. It just released a new expansion. Um, so uh, I would recommend it. All right. Before I wrap up here, I also do want to uh, remind you that uh, you can uh, subscribe to this podcast at culturallyrelevantshow.com. I'd love to hear what you think of the show and of these episodes uh, and of the regular episodes. We'll be back with a regular episode next week, hopefully a bonus episode uh, in the near future as well. Um, but yeah, you can email me at culturallyrelevantshow at gmail.com. Follow the show on Twitter at crevshow. That's C-R-E-V-S-H-O-W. Uh, and of course, if you enjoy the show, I'd really love it if you could leave a star rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. It does help. Okay, so I made my first two points today. Um, again, uh, it's normal to be confused. Don't worry about being confused. And number two is like, we're normalizing this in a way that's upsetting. Point number three, uh, our work is not over. I read this article in The New Yorker today. And uh, it's by James Ross Gardner. The headline of the article is, The End of the Beginning, Seattle Braces for the Next Phase of the Coronavirus Fight. Uh, and, you know, I, I live in Seattle. We're the first city in the country to have someone die from coronavirus. And uh, I, throughout this whole thing, I mean, there's been some exceptions, but overall, I've been pretty happy with how our governor, Mayor, uh, Jay Inslee, has been handling this, uh, Governor Jay Inslee has respected science and has done what he can to flatten the curve and make sure our uh, medical system is not overwhelmed. And in this article, you can kind of read the things that he did to ensure that. But uh, here's a, uh, an excerpt from the article by James Ross Gardner. He writes, quote, looking ahead, the verb tense is important. Social distancing didn't work. Social distancing is working. All the public officials and researchers I spoke to agreed, it's not, oh, great, now the problem is gone. Mike Famular, a scientist at IDM and co-leader of the study that calculated COVID-19 slowing spread, told me, Scott Lindquist, Washington State's epidemiologist for communicable diseases, warned that if we relax too soon, the coronavirus may proliferate again. We could set ourselves up for another increase in positives, he said. But Lindquist is encouraged by how responsive elected officials have been to the science. If the data show that the orders need to be extended, he believes they will be. And this past Friday, Governor Jay Inslee did just that, extending the social distancing and business shutdown orders set to expire on May 4th to May 31st. He also announced an incremental approach to reopening the state, starting with retail stores being allowed to offer curbside pickup and permitting car washes, auto sales, and drive through spiritual services all within a couple weeks. That combined with other recent announcements, like easing restrictions on construction, elective surgeries, and some outdoor recreation, may signal some optimism. But there's also potential cause for alarm. Washington has surpassed 15,000 confirmed cases of COVID-19 and more than 800 deaths. A recent IDM report found that the rate of the decline had, for the first time in weeks, begun to lag, suggesting that if officials relax social distancing measures too soon, there could be a surge in cases. Uh, Jenny Durkin, the Seattle mayor, relishes the day we could roll back all the restrictions, 
but we're not there yet, she told me last month. She just signed a one-time order closing 15 of the city's largest parks for the upcoming weekend. Defying the social distancing orders, some people have been showing up at beaches and on tennis and basketball courts. The mayor needed the civically dutiful ones, the unfriendly and chilly ones, and especially the rebellious ones to know we can't go and have our social gatherings and barbecues and picnics, end quote. I'll just pause there and say, uh, yeah, I mean... The work is not done. We're really just at the beginning of this. This thing's going to last years. And um, I appreciate people's efforts uh, in trying to contain the spread, both the people who are ruling us over here at Seattle who are, who are governing and the people who are uh, doing their best to stay home and open up in a cautious way. Uh, I, I think the phased approach feels really smart to me. And Already, we've started to see some semblance of normal life return here in Seattle. I see more people outdoors when I go on my walks, and more businesses are starting to be open. My my physical therapy place emailed. They said, we're going to be open um, starting on May 11th, and I think things are slowly starting to open up, and everyone's being really cautious about it, and I think that's great, um, but also it's very clear that there is more work ahead, and I hope everyone out there who's doing similar work know that like this is a marathon, not a sprint. And you're saving up energy and reserves for the long run. I'll end on this quote from the article. For now, we stay at home and wait, and we watch other regions that are in the position we were in weeks before. The wave of casualties and economic destruction that first hit Seattle has long since rolled across the country, every city a replica of our empty, boarded-up own. But here in the first U.S. state with a confirmed case, the first to log a death, there is cause, however modest, for optimism. We show that there's a way to slow the spread, that it could in fact be done. At the beginning of all this, at the start of March, as the death count climbed, and we stopped shaking hands and sitting in the same rooms together, I thought of Seattle as living in the laboratory of the nation's future. I hope that was wrong. Now I hope I'm right. End quote. Uh, all right. I think that's going to do it, folks. I'm getting a little emotional here, you know, um, reading this and thinking about it. And um, yeah, things are things are looking up in Seattle. And uh I hope they'll be looking up where you are as well. Thanks for listening. See you on next week's episode of Culturally Relevant.